Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. You can now watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. The game of baseball has been loved and enjoyed for well over 100 years. Children, parents, and grandparents have bonded, and a lifetime of memories have formed through playing, watching, and rooting for your favorite player and or team. Most of us who have played the game have had fun fantasies of getting the winning World Series hit or making a great catch, but few of us are good enough to play college or the pros. Today's guest, baseball teaching legend, Walter Beatty was drafted by the Chicago Cubs, and his son Tyler is a major league pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Walter is the author of the, of the Process, a family guide to developing college-ready prospects from Little League through high school. Uh, Coach, thank you for joining me today. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to join you here today. Thank you for having me. So let me start off as, why did you write the book? Uh, during COVID, Kerry, uh, I had a lot of people calling me and asking me, now what? We don't have any games. We don't have any travel. Are we getting left behind? And I found it fascinating that, that parents uh, felt the need to be in an organized environment in order for their sons to become better or just to be able to play the sport of baseball. So I, I kind of just talked to a few people, most notably Tim Corbin at Vanderbilt. And he said, you know what, you should really write a book. Uh, and I did it in kind of like a trilogy form, uh, you know, ages three to nine uh, was fun over fear. The book that you have the process, which is really the vast majority of athletes uh, ages 10 to say 16, 17. I just felt there was a need to allow parents to understand that baseball for almost over well over a century has been more organic and not as organized as people 
think and that if you kind of take a look down south to the Latin countries, they don't have anything close to, to organized baseball the way we have here. So I thought I'd write it in a book or multiple books to kind of shed some light and offer parents an alternative to travel baseball. I mean, it's you bring up the Latin players and, you know, uh, about a month ago, I guess it was a baseball draft and you see all these first round players being drafted for lots of money and and you look back at first rounders that never really make it and then you look none of those people in that draft were from latin america so there's a whole group of athletes that are being left out well i think ultimately at some point there will be some form of an international draft but i think what we've we've been blindsided by the world of uh, you know, travel sports, you know, when I was a kid, hockey, junior hockey, uh, that led into basketball in some capacity. And then baseball really become, became a big deal with regard to travel or AAU baseball, probably the early 2000s. Uh, but, you know, if you look at Latin players, you know, if we can just Juan Soto, Ronald Asuna, you know, and a lot of the pitchers, they're, they're very gregarious. They're very playful they're fun they smile a lot they learn the game from playing and watching older players within their neighborhoods and local towns and cities and they played it uh you know in an unstructured format you know in backyards and in playgrounds and, and such whereas here we feel the need to be uh you know take a lesson and that's a 30 minute increment and then we have a game and that's an hour and a half time limit and everything is very regimented and formatted. We don't see a lot of smiles and a lot of fun uh, on, on baseball fields during the travel tournaments. And I think you mentioned the draft. Well, international players can sign as young as 18 years, as 16 years old. Uh, and at 16, they're physically mature. They're physically developed. That's because, again, they've watched and competed against older players. Uh, I'm 60 years old. And when I was a young man and playing baseball, I played Little League again, you know, as a 10-year-old or against 12-year-olds. And I played Babe Ruth against 15-year-olds when I was 13 in American Legion in high school baseball. At 15, I was competing against 18 and 19-year-olders. Whereas here, uh, we've become this uh, formatted 7, 8, 9, 10, age-based, grade-based format of baseball. And that's not what it looks like at the higher level. So it kind of gives a false sense of uh, you know, security to, to, to players as they come up when they go, kind of are only competing against one age or one grade. And you make that point in your book, one of the ways to get better is to compete against older kids so you can see faster pitching and better bat speed and the ball coming off the ball a little bit faster if you're in the field. Well, I think if we look at high school curriculum or college curriculum, you know, anything that we do as learners uh, at younger ages, and even here as adults, we learn in mass. We learn and we surround ourselves with a group of peers. They're not strictly only uh, age-based learning. I mean, I remember in high school, I'd be a sophomore in Spanish two, and there'd be seniors uh, in my class. Um, and I think the biggest uh, kind of narrative that gets pushed is that players will get hurt if they play against older players. And it's never been that way in the history of the sport. Uh, you know, a 22-year-old major league pitcher is facing a 34-year-old hitter 
Um, you know, and, and nobody worries about, oh boy, that 22 year old is going to get hurt. But in baseball, even at older ages, when I say 13 to 16 or 13 to 18, parents absolutely are deathly afraid of, of putting a 14 year older in, in against a 16 or 17 year older. But within one year, that athlete's going to be asked to compete, which I find amusing because parents will say, well, my son didn't make varsity baseball as a freshman. Well, he's 15 and he's now competing against 18 and 19 year olders and you haven't let him compete against those players. And so there's a reason why he didn't play varsity right away. He has to kind of ramp himself up and kind of get himself prepared. So I find it to be a really disturbing trend within youth athletics uh, because it's a monetary, it's a business model. It's not a developmental model. You know, when we were kids, we'd go outside and play with our friends and all ages played. Everything now is so structured. And I guess it is because it's become a way of making money. Well, it's exactly that, Gary. I mean, it is always about business because people figured out very early. And again, I when I talk to parents, I say, let's look at the average owner of a indoor facility or a travel organization. They generally are now in their mid-early 40s, but they've been doing it since they were 20 to 25 because they recognized right away that people wanted to spend money, not only for lessons, but to be on a team that would allow their son to gain stature and status within the community. But they figured out if I make one team of 10 and 12-year-olds, 11 and 12-year-olds, I don't make as much as if I had three teams of 20 players paying $2,000 to four to six to $8,000 per player. So I make more money with more teams. Uh, you know, and parents never quite picked up on that. The name on the jersey might say the All-American Prospects. But, you know, if you're playing on the All-American Prospects blue team or white team or gold team, and it's not the big team, what are you really gaining as far as having that name across your chest? But the business model of travel baseball pushes a narrative of fear. Uh, they sell fear to parents. Your, your son is not going to play at a competitive enough level. He's not going to get a, a good enough coaching. Uh, we're going to provide him with an opportunity to be seen by college coaches. It's not accurate. You know, but on the flip side, I was talking to a friend of mine whose son loves baseball, and he's just a very average or below average player, and there's nowhere for him to play. So he plays on a, a B or a C team travel team because there's no kids outside for him to play with. So that's the only way he could, he could play. And the father has to fork over this money for him to play. He knows, you know, probably he's not going to be a college player, but he wants the opportunity to play because he loves the game. Well, I think, and that is really the model that 80%, maybe even 90%, most student athletes will not play at the college level. Most will not play at the high school varsity level. And I always tell parents, if you're utilizing travel baseball as if it were a trip to Disney, meaning it's about moments and memories and fun and, and joining your friends. Okay. That's a great perspective. And I completely agree with that, with that premise. But if you're viewing it as a vehicle or a platform for your son to ultimately become a big leaguer, uh, or a Division One baseball player, and both are, are minor to major miracles because less than 1% of, of players at the youth level will ever play Major League Baseball. 
uh, even for an inning. And then as with regard to high uh, college baseball at the division one level, it's about two to 3%. So if we start looking at those numbers, again, if we're looking at it as a fun vehicle, opportunity to participate with our friends locally and compete against nearby towns and, and enjoy our childhood and kind of look at it as a, you know, a, a fun experience, much the same way we would view a trip to Disney. That's great. It's, it's the people or the families that utilize social media that are all into the statistics and look at me and my son's going to go here and there. That's where things start to go off the track. And a lot of people get hurt in that particular instance. You brought up the Spanish players before the Latin American players. And, you know, they're happy-go-lucky. You know, they it seems like if they make it out, you know, next time it'll be better. I remember watching TV and Mariano Rivera blew a save, one of the rare ones that he blew. And they stuck a microphone in his in his face and they say, well, what happened? What, do you, what happened? How come you blew the save? And he goes, I already forgot about it. We, we got to think about tomorrow. You know, it means nothing. And it, and it seems the mental side, those guys, those players, there's a lot of people that are great, but the mental part, I think sometimes separates who could make it and who can't. And if you could talk about the mental side a little bit. Well, this is a something that's very near and dear to my heart. And I learned it as a father while I was a college coach. And I think we, as parents, put so much emphasis on results and statistics, um, and and it becomes part of a young athlete's kind of uh, nature to not want to let mom or dad or friends down, and, and and so we kind of rehash bad things that happen, and we kind of use that as oh we got to be better next time, or or how did you drop that pop up? Whereas in the you know, the Latin countries and, and these kids learn at a very young age, hey, don't worry, be prepared for the next opportunity. Hey, it doesn't matter. Anything that we did, whether we did well or we didn't do as well as we would have liked, we're going to get another opportunity. And that's really what makes bat baseball such a great sport is because you're a shortstop and you make an error, you're going to get another opportunity. So let's be ready for that. And we need to teach children from a mental health perspective that the game is the foundation of baseball is somebody has to fail, quote unquote, fail. Meaning if I'm a pitcher and somebody hits a home run, I must have failed. He must have been successful. But in reality, my job as a pitcher is to throw a ball and his job as a hitter is to hit the ball. He was victorious. He hit the ball and he hit a home run. That doesn't make me a bad pitcher and it doesn't make him a great hitter. It just means he won that particular, uh, you know, uh, confrontation. We tend to become so concerned with what has happened as opposed to what might happen. And one does not reflect on what will happen. In other words, if I strike out with the bases loaded four times in a row and I come up with the baseball bases loaded for a fifth time, if I'm thinking in a negative capacity, therefore, I'm probably going to end up with a negative result. So when I talk with parents, especially of younger children, I say, let's look at the world of, of animals. Let's just look at an animal. You know, let's take a squirrel. A squirrel knows I have to gather, you know, if I'm going to eat during the winter, I got to get some acorns. 
So if he misses an opportunity today to get an acorn, he knows tomorrow I got to go out and get a couple of acorns or at least get one acorn. If it's a shark and a shark is hungry and he sees a pack of seals and he goes for the bite and he misses, he doesn't kind of pout and drift away. He circles back around and he goes back after it. So it's all about your mindset as a baseball player has to be, okay, I need to be prepared for my next opportunity. You know, there's nothing I can do about that. It's like World War II, it's ancient history. I can't go back and change the outcome, but I can be prepared for the next opportunity and, and have an effect on that outcome when the opportunity arises. And I think if we were more inclined as parents to not go back to ask about what happened or what did you think, or just let them talk, let children talk to us and say, geez, I bet you're unhappy that I struck out. No, you gave it your best effort. If you felt like you gave it everything you had, that's what ba makes baseball great. The pitcher won that round, but the next opportunity, just be prepared to get out there and compete and have some fun, lighten it up at the younger ages. I think that is really um, what my, my major takeaway is in Latin countries is they don't take it as serious as we do at these younger ages, these younger tournaments. You know, it, you know, in your book, you talk about you as a player when you were younger and so you think that the best eight-year-old player or the best 10-year-old player is going to be the one that's going to make it to be a professional player. And I guess that's not necessarily true from, from what I've read in, in your book. Well, I can, t I can absolutely tell you, when I tell this story, people think I'm exaggerating or embellishing, but I can absolutely 100% tell you I'm not. I grew up in a family that was not athletic. In fact, I lost my mom when I was very young, when I was six years old. We lived with my grandmother, my father and I. And my dad was a truck driver and a, a military uh, canine officer. And he really wasn't athletic. Um, and I, I ended up moving to a neighborhood with lots of older guys, lots of older kids. And, you know, we played kickball, we played football, we played street hockey. You know, and I got a lot of pucks off the head and I, you know, I was probably the worst baseball player, um, you know, in my neighborhood and probably in my city. And so I learned very quickly that if I was going to want to participate, I was going to have to work hard to get better. And I'll never forget one of my first tryouts when I was probably nine or 10 years old, I didn't make a team. Uh, and that's how big of a deal it was. You, you know, back then, if you didn't make a team, they didn't create another team for you to play on. Uh, so my dad basically would stick his head in and say, hey, you know, you can fall down a couple times, but you got to get up three times. Uh, if you keep getting back up sooner or later, you know, you're going to either get back and get better or you're going to, you know, kind of give it up and move on to something else. Um, whereas in today's world, we worry about how good somebody is when they're younger. That's when we're learning. We grow at different times. We learn at different speeds. Uh, our, our athletic abilities our kinetic sequences all begin to connect at different stages as a child um you know i can remember very vividly being 10 years old and facing a 12 year old pitcher and when i tell you he threw hard to me he was nolan ryan at 12 years old and i remember vividly thinking if i could just foul a ball off just foul a ball off that would be a victory for me and when i did a light bulb went on like okay i can do this um, but ultimately, I think a lot of parents worry about where we are today is going to lead to where we become tomorrow, what we become tomorrow. And, and that cannot be further from the truth. 
I've literally, over the last 40 years as a coach, I have seen players that did not play in any in high school become Division I athletes and play in the most prestigious college summer program in the Cape Cod League. And they never played one inning in high school. And all the high school stars never played in college. So I think we're led to believe where we are as young children is what we're going to become as you know, teenagers and young adults with regard to being athletes. And that nothing could be further from the truth. Do you think the kid that matures quicker, say at 12 or 13, that goes through puberty quicker, or the kid that goes through puberty later uh, at 16, 17, who do you think has the, the better, the bigger advantage as they go through the, the system? This is an easy one. The, the, the young man that goes through puberty later is going to be much further advanced mentally, physically, athletically, for one simple reason. They know what it takes to grind. They know what it looks like, feels like, sounds like to be the, the person that might be left behind. Whereas the young man that gets puberty early never really gets tested. He kind of wears the crown, so to speak. And so a lot of uh, failure, he doesn't deal with a lot of failure. They don't deal with a lot of uncertainty. They know they can impose their will uh, athletically and physically when needed. The young man that grinds from a very young age, when I say, and that's an overused word, grind. The work ethic for student athletes, we, we seem to have left that behind because we think it's a lesson and we went early in the morning and we got up early to go do a lesson. That's not grinding. That's not working. Uh, the young man that gets up early, that has chores to do, that might go to the school and do some weightlifting to try to get more uh, uh, size and strength to be able to compete with the, the, the bigger boys. That's the young man that when they begin to hit their physical maturation later on at 16 through 21, they can put all their pieces together fairly easily and quickly. Whereas the reverse of that is a lot harder, a lot harder. What do you think makes a good coach? You know, I've seen kid coaches at young levels where the coaches are yelling at the kids and they make an error and they're screaming at them. And then you, then I've seen coaches where, you know, they're always, you know, they're the total opposite. You know, they're always encouraging and always looking for the, for the, for the bright side in every kid. And at the end of the game says, you did this good. You did that good. What, what do you think makes a good coach from young to your, to your level and even in the major leagues? Well, when I'm working with parents and families from all across the country, I always let them know the best coaches in any sport at any level, youth all the way to professional, they want to know what the athlete knows before disseminating everything that they may know as a coach. I think a lot of times coaches get caught up in trying to, you know, show I know everything. I know all of this. And I want you to know what I know. When in reality, we want to know what the athletes know, what the athletes understand. What can the athletes implement into their uh, workouts and, and, and practices and, and games? Uh, and I think those coaches that take the time to get to know what their team knows as individuals and then collectively can create and chart a course to be able to teach them all as individuals, as part of a team, is what makes a great coach. I also think, especially in today's world, 
temperament is a is a huge part of how younger athletes learn. I don't think any younger athlete these days benefits in any way, shape, or form from anger or, or the, the, the tone, the loud tone. Uh, I think they want to hear the message, and I think they want to begin to understand why are you teaching me this? Why is it important for me to learn this? What is it that this is going to provide me to become better? So I think a lot of younger athletes, largely due to the fact of technology, you know, I never could go home and go to Google and say how to field a ground ball or how to catch a pop-up. Where today, athletes want to ask more questions. So we as coaches have to answer more questions. Uh, I think the coaches that want to tell athletes what they're doing without telling them why, is a big void there. Uh, and as it pertains to baseball, the number one thing that college coaches will say to me uh, with regard to being prepared to be a college athlete is the lack of instincts. And instincts come through repetition. Uh, repetition equals retention. And student athletes today, they don't take enough uh, repetitions because coaches are spending so much time trying to condense what might be a two-hour practice into a one-hour practice hoping to be able to maximize field time. We are limited somehow, some way with field opportunities. Um, so coaches today need to be better prepared and to be able to speak uh, to younger athletes and, um, that are curious and they want to ask more questions. Whereas in the old days, coaches just belted out, you know, here's what we're doing today. This is how we're going to do it. Go. And now it's just not that way anymore. And what are the coaches looking for in, in a kid? Physicality, strength, mental toughness. Um, you know, when I say that to parents, mental toughness. Today's college landscape and professional landscape, uh, you're, everywhere you go has a t cell phone or a camera. Uh, so you're not, you can't hide anymore. Um, when you get to college, regardless of the level, you know, you're competing with older, more physically, mentally, academically prepared young men. And so it, it, it's really a matter of your daily routines and disciplines matter. So when do you want to start that? Do you want to wait until you're a freshman in college and say, okay, now I know I have to start getting up early. I have to know how to use my 168 hours a day. Uh, um, and, and that's the biggest hurdle uh, from college, uh, from high school to college, is the lack of an understanding of the need for routine. And when I say that to parents, oh, he's very structured. Well, what time does he get up? Well, he gets up at 7.30. What time does he have to be at school? Uh, quarter of eight. Well, that's not really discipline. You know, there's not enough time there to shower, eat a good breakfast. Um, you know, so when I'm starting to talk with parents, I say 168 hours, let's give at least 50 to sleep. So, and if we take an academic, you know, 40 hour week with studying and classes and so forth, you know, we're now down, you know, almost to approximately 30 to 40 hours of, of what we need to do. And how are you maximizing those? How are you using those to get better um, physically, mentally? Uh, what is your nutrition? How many calories are you getting a day? So the biggest area of neglect for most student athletes and their families is lack of preparation with regard to nutrition and strength. It's the number one separator between opportunities as younger 
college players for not getting those opportunities. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. I just want to ask you about the kid with unbelievable talent, but when he strikes out, he throws his helmet, he throws his bat, almost hits the other kids with the helmet or the bat. What happens? How does a coach handle that? Well, if if it's a high school coach and that is occurring young, you have to you have to nip that right away, and you have to understand. And, and this is a big Ted Williams quote, and I lived in the same area as Johnny Pesky. And Johnny Pesky used to always use this quote, and he'd attribute it to Ted Williams. He'd always say to me, "It's not the arrow, it's the Indian." So, like, if I ever struck out and tossed my bat or tossed my helmet, uh, Tony Clignaro and Johnny Pesky, they were from my area, and they would always say to me, hey, it's not the equipment. It's the guy operating the equipment. So, you know, you can't get frustrated uh, because, first of all, composure and poise in all facets of life, we want to understand what those two words mean and why they matter. And if we apply them to the sport of baseball, composure means our heartbeat. We control our heartbeat. We can control our emotions. And we don't want to concede that the other side beat us because now we're showing, okay, we're now in their heads. We now have them on tilt. So if you don't stop it at a younger age, whether it's parents or coaches, it only gets worse because let's say that young man is a really talented young man. And he strikes out with the bases loaded down by a run. And if he had gotten a base hit, the team would have won a state championship. Okay, well, now you're allowing him to wallow in pity. And, and he's basically looking for somebody to say, that's okay. It is okay. It has no correlation to life. It has no correlation to whether somebody's happy or sad. It's just an athletic opportunity that came and went. And now next time I have to learn I want to be more aggressive earlier in the count. I want to be looking for a pitch middle in or whatever, but I want to learn from that, take from that, and when that opportunity presents itself. So if we explain to, to a young student athlete all of the things that I just alluded to, hey, look, it's not a big deal. It was an opportunity. It came, it went. You were not successful. That's part of baseball. Failing is going to happen at least seven out of 10 times. And what I used to do to my sons when they'd have a bad game, Ken Griffey was all the rage when my sons were young. And I'd take a baseball card out, you know, and he'd be sitting, my youngest son would be sitting there eating some uh, cereal, all pouty. And I'd say, hey, look at that card. And I, you know, he'd look at it and say, yeah, Griffey hit 43 home runs last year. I said, no, 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 look at how many times he struck out last year. I said, I wonder if he struck out with the bases loaded, or I wonder if he struck out with the runner in scoring position. So, my point is, is that baseball is rooted in some capacity in failure. And so once we teach children that it's simply part of the game, in other words, an out, it could be a pop-up, it could be a fly ball, it could be a line drive, it could be a ground ball, 
It can be a foul pop-up. It can be a strikeout. They're all outs. <laughs> They're not different in the scorebook. Um, so, you know, the, the big thing is it only takes three outs for us to get our at-bat. So teach children the rules of the game as a part of the flow of the game. And I think their temperaments will get better over time. Because I can tell you at the college level, uh, you know, let's take Dansby Swanson, Major League All-Star, Atlanta Braves. He hit 250 in high school as a senior. Really? Do you think that he – so do you think he was – was Tim Corbin concerned uh, about Dansby Swanson? I can tell you no. He didn't. It didn't matter because you see the skills. And so water will always rise to the level that it, it needs to be at. And so that's how athletes are. If you're a 250 hitter, you're always going to be a 250 hitter. One day you might go four for four. Well, that means the next day you're going to probably go 0 for four, and it's all going to even itself out. So parents need to understand, especially as it relates to baseball, but youth sports in general, they simply play a part in the role of the development of the temperament of the adult to be that they're about to become. And the sooner that you teach, teach them poise and composure, the better adult, the better parent, the better husband, the better business associate they'll be, because they will be able to weather the storm in whatever format of life that they end up having to deal with, you know, stress or, or, or uh, misfortune. I was wondering about the kid who was great in practice, but can never perform in, in the game. Uh, I'm sure you've come across kids like that. They're fantastic in practice, but it, once the game goes on, they never perform. What do, what do you think that is? It's a mental hurdle um, because there's no pressure associated with practice. And nobody really is coming to watch practice. Nobody's really keeping score at, at practice. And so practice is a – and I used to I – I had a player in college, and it wasn't until his senior year that he – put all of his tools together and he, he had a tremendous senior year. Uh, but he was always one of those players in practice. He could hit a ball a country mile. He could throw a baseball, probably 95, but get into a game. He'd swing and miss and he'd throw like 87. And, and it's because the heat of the spotlight in a game is very real for young student athletes because their parents are there. Their grandparents are there. Their friends are there. And it matters. It has meaningful. There's somebody keeping a scorebook. And so, again, it goes back to at what point do we want to begin to teach younger children when they're playing sports that your results really have no significance? It's what you take and what you give to the sport mentally and physically. If you know that you've given your best and you can put your take your uniform off and say, you know, I did everything I could today to be the best that I could be. I just didn't get the result. You can live with that. But if you say, you know, I really wasn't concentrating. I, I really, I, my mind was, I quit in my mind. Okay. You can't expect a good result physically with a bad thought mentally. If you're telling yourself failure is imminent, your body is going to respond accordingly. But if you take a more positive approach and you're aggressive, and if you fail, you failed aggressively and not passively, again, that becomes, that's where your skill sets are developed. And that's where I go back to when I was a younger player. And my oldest son was a lot like me 
when it, when he was uh, younger, uh, it took him a while for him to grow into his body. <clears throat> and so what he would do when he would get frustrated, I would say, not the arrow, it's the Indian. Give it some time. You're going to grow into your body. And that's ultimately what happened. But the practice players that are successful, mom and dad aren't around. Uh, there's no lights on the scoreboard. And everybody's laughing and kind of very jovial. There's no tension. There's no competitive spirit going on. And if you learn to take that same mental mindset into the games and don't worry about the outcome, be in your now, focus on your now, you know, live in your now and let things happen. And sometimes you won't have an understanding. How did I do that? You don't have to know. The bottom line is you did it. Uh, You know, you don't have to question yourself like how you did something. You executed and you performed and you were successful. And then you have the kid that's the opposite, who doesn't do that well in practice, but always does good in the game. And I tell you, the reason for that is most of those student athletes are so carefree uh, that they don't don't care about practice. And they really don't care about the game, but they know that they have a switch that they know they can flip. Uh, those, Those student athletes are gifted from such a young age. And they learn very quickly when it matters, I'm going to be ready. Uh, but in practice, I'm bored. And they tend not to be challenged in practice. <clears throat> and, and those are the, the athletes that need to play up. They need to be challenged. And when they're in these competitive environments and they know, heck, I'm better than everybody here. I don't really have to practice. I don't really have to do this. Because they're not engaged mentally and they're not engaged physically. There's no reward. They know they are. And when they're in a game and everybody's watching and the lights are flipped on, I'm going to show everybody that I'm, I'm the best player here. Um, and those student athletes tend to be the ones that are a little, they're not involved in strength and conditioning. They're just fast twitch, uh, you know, very athletic in all sports. And they just allow those gifts to kind of take over when the lights get turned on. In your book, you talk about the 13 to 15 are the critical years. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Those are the years that the diamond forever stays the same size. Your body is going to increase and grow, but the 13 to 15-year-old years are when the rubber hits the road as as it pertains particularly to the sport of baseball. One, you're going to be frustrated at 13, and the quality of the game at 13 in today's world is horrible because all 13 year olders lack strength. But this is where you develop instincts for the game of baseball at 13 to 15. This is where you gain insight as to how to play the game as if you were a big leaguer, meaning pickoffs, leads, cutoffs, all the small minutia that is going to matter with regard to whether or not you become a high school varsity player, a college player, potentially, or a, a pro are going to you're going to learn those skill sets at 13 and 15 and again if we revert back to the latin american countries and we say to parents at 16 latin players can be signed by major league teams at 16 when do you think that they learned the vast majority of their skill sets it wasn't when they were 10 it was when they were 13 or 15 and they were competing against older players and they learned the timing So, Kerry, let me give you a case in point. There's an internal clock 
that goes off in the game of baseball. And everybody says it's boring. Well, it's boring in between pitches. But when the game, when a pitcher's on the mound and he goes to deliver a pitch, a clock, a stopwatch starts. And that stopwatch is basically five seconds between the pitch gets delivered and either a hit or an out is, is going to occur. With, all within five seconds. So once you learn how to play within that clock, meaning a ground ball to short, I have 4.4 seconds to get field the ball, throw the ball and record an out. And you learn how to play at that speed and at that level. And now I'm reacting instinctively. Okay, the ball is taking me to my left. I need to throw to second. I'm not gonna be able to throw to first. Well, those things are all being learned at 13 to 15. The other big separator, as I alluded to in the book, is at what point do, do student athletes begin to learn that physical fitness and strength physical maturation are going to matter to me and it really begins at 13 to 15 because if you wait until you get to high school you're kind of behind because it's at the high school level that everybody wants to shine they want to be a varsity athlete and the expectations are well my son's a really good travel player he's going to be a great high school varsity player and then they look to their right and left and those guys are 185 195 and your son's 140 and that's what happened to my 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 youngest son <clears throat> and thank goodness for a guy like Eric Cressy, my youngest son went from 6'2", 140 as an eighth grader to six foot three, 175, 180 as a high school freshman. Um, but again, it was at those ages of 14 and 15 that he was playing against 16-year-olders and lifting with adults. And so when I talk to parents and I say, you're worried about equipment. You're worried about bats at 13. You're worried about getting hurt by a 14 or 15 year older. When in reality, you should absolutely immerse your son into the world of older players and into the world of physical fitness and nutrition and caloric intake. And a bagel, half of a bagel at 7.30 is not what you're going to want to eat. You're going to want to sit down and try to get a thousand calories in before you leave for school uh, and try to get your body to understand caloric intake, strength workouts, they all go together. One cannot happen without the other. And it really occurs at 13 through 15. You mentioned Eric Cressy. How do you find a good trainer and what should a parent look for to get a good trainer? <clears throat> First thing you should do is go to your local physical therapist and get a movement screening. Meaning when I say that to parents, I try to tell them, you want to know about your hips and your shoulders and the internal and external rotation and areas of weakness. <clears throat> and a physical therapist or a kinesiologist, they're going to be able to identify the, the areas of weakness as an athlete. Um, you know, <clears throat> one thing that parents fail to understand is we do everything in our life moving forward. We walk forward, we run forward, we go upstairs forward, we shake hands, everything we're moving forward. So the front or the accelerators in our body are always stronger than our decelerators we don't walk backwards we don't do backwards sprints we don't do a lot of rear shoulder work so if we look at younger athletes they're very physically developed in the front but the areas of neglect are hamstrings and, and things of that nature calf muscles and so you want to try to find a local physical therapist in today's world unlike when i started uh you know there's lots of gyms but not all gyms are or, or strength facilities are the same. You'd like to try to find a baseball specific trainer if you can. Google search will help you with that. If you can't find that, you wanna find somebody that is a personal trainer that has been certified 
you don't want to do a football workout per se for a baseball player. And so I always encourage parents to find local high school athletes or college athletes or local professional players. Ask where do they work out? Where, where are you working out? Where do you do your workouts? Who do you train with? Um, but always go to Google. Uh, guys across the country now are doing a lot of remote work. Cressy Performance, Mike Reinhold, Ben Fairchild, uh, Nunzio in, uh, in, in New Jersey. Uh, they are all doing remote work. So you can get an evaluation screen now remotely with the technology on the phones and things of that nature. But it is critical. If I could say to one parent, the magic is always going to occur with the strength and nutrition. It doesn't occur with the lessons. It will occur with nutrition and strength. And so those parents that take and heed and they kind of uh, develop a plan, their, their student athletes always end up inevitably having a great experience at, at the high school and sometimes the college level. If, if, you're, if you were starting all over and your son was 12 or 13, at what age would you start him doing exercises and what exercises would you have him do? I would probably start, you know, right when they were starting to play youth sports. Both my boys played Papuana football and youth basketball, et cetera. Body weight exercises, I think, are, are vastly underutilized. Um, simple like things such as push-ups, but you can do wall squats. You can do uh, knee bends. You can, I think we, uh, when I was a kid, uh, we had the presidential fitness you know, where you had to broad jump and high jump and, and sit-ups and push-ups, I think we underestimate the power of just simple stretching, you know, and what that can do for children uh, and younger athletes at the age of 10. Um, I, I think I probably would have started both boys uh, if I knew what I knew now at around 10, uh, because it, it, it can be a fun It's not arduous at 10. It's not laborious at 10. You're not saying, oh, I got to go to the gym. They look forward to it and they do things with a uh, plyo ball uh, against the wall, uh, foam rollers, um, things that can help keep them, you know, the buzzword of today, pliable uh, and flexible, uh, I think is really undervalued uh, with youth travel sports. We pay so much money for skill set development, but we don't have the foundation of strength and nutrition. And how about the curls or presses or bench presses is, is that part of baseball training it is part of baseball training uh i tend to be more uh dumbbell orientated uh as opposed to the barbell but if we look at all facets of sports rotational functional explosive movement patterns are required you know so you know it's the core it's the lower back that sit-ups that's you know there's a lot of things that you can do i think light dumbbell work with regard to stabilizer muscles is fantastic but a lot of things can be done now with band work you know you have alan yeager bands you have bands that work your scapula the rear heads of your shoulders you can take you know here's a big thing that within youth baseball uh weighted baseballs have become all the rage they've been around since i was a kid and i tell parents all the time they always boo the weighted baseball I said, does your son ever throw a football? Well, well, yeah, he throws a football. I said, well, that's a weighted ball. That's going to be somewhere between 10 and 16 ounces. Um, and that's a weighted ball. So it's not the weight of the object. It's how your body gets involved with throwing the object. So the more we take the, the stigma of or the fear of getting hurt, and we replace that with the knowledge of 
stretching and, and lifting uh, age appropriate, obviously, we're going to benefit from that. And so I, Eric Cressy's greatest line is when children show an interest, they can start. There's been numerous studies that have been conducted, um, you know, with children as young as eight, nine, 10 years old, you know, doing a lot of body weight exercises, band exercises, light dumbbell exercises. It's not going to stunt your growth. In fact, it's going to teach you to be more in tune with your body as a young athlete and recognizing the importance of hydration. Uh, as simple, as silly as this sounds, you know, we run to Gatorade. And I always tell parents, take water, take strawberries, take berries, watermelon, put it in your son's water, <clears throat> kind of diffused water. Much, much better. And the hydration is what's going to keep them from cramping up. It's going to allow their muscles to stay pliable and serviceable. They're not going to cramp up or tighten up. Um, and yet we just go out, if you take a conventional parent, starting as young as six, they're playing five and six games on a weekend. I mean, think about that. It's unheard of, but yet that's what occurs. But we're giving them a cheeseburger from McDonald's and a Gatorade or a hot dog from the concession stand, you know, instead of an apple or, you know, a big thing of water or, you know, a banana or something like that. So the sooner parents recognize, and I always call it the golden bridge is 13 to 15. If you walk over the golden bridge and you take the time to understand all of the components, meaning the, the nutrition, the sleep, the water, the strength, the instincts, the repetitions, if you do all that stuff and you kind of get away from tournaments and you get away from lessons, you're going to be much more advanced and prepared for high school and college and beyond than the boys that are all focused on playing 80 games in the course of a summer. That, that to me is, is a mystery. I'll never understand. You talk about in the book about nutrition, and that's a part, something that I'm very interested in. And you talk about five to 10,000 calories a day. What kind of foods are a professional? I mean, your son's a professional baseball player. What kind of foods are recommended for younger kids as they're trying to get stronger? And what does a professional baseball player eat the day of a game, after a game? I mean, I, I assume that they have the highest, the best people in the world helping them with nutrition. Well, the professional and the college game have become very in tune and aware. Nutrition and the performance. And so nutrition for a major league athlete or a college athlete, you know, we're talking about a protein, a complex carb, a lot of veggies, a lot of green vegetables. We're talking about a lot of hydration, a lot of water, um, you know, and they'll, they'll eat things like the, the uh, you know, the protein bars. Uh, they'll eat things, uh, you know, in a fast snack, they'll have, uh, you know, a big salad with chicken or tuna. Uh, you know, but a lot of these guys, uh, you know, they're in tune with their trainers for telling them, okay, we want to maintain uh, X amount of percentage of proteins versus X amount of complex carbs, rice, sweet potatoes. Uh, in fact, at that level, they'll often say, take a starch and replace it with a, you know, make your carbohydrate to be a sweet potato as much as you can. You get a lot of the green vegetables, the broccolis, the spinaches, the things like that. I, I talk to young parents and children about that. It goes right over their head. Hey, I don't like spinach. I don't like any of that stuff. And so then I get to the, okay, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? 
well, my son lifts weights, you know, four or five times a week and he's with the football team. And I say, okay, well, tell him, let's talk about his, his schedule. Let's give it a typical day. And, uh, you know, okay, he gets up at seven, he goes to school by 7.30. He's got lunch at 11.30. He gets out at 2.30, has practice at 3.15. He comes home and he eats at six, goes to bed at 11. I said, okay. So I just heard three meals, two and a half if I take breakfast to half a bagel. So 5,000 to 10,000 calories. I always encourage parents, we want to create an all everything shake, meaning whatever they like to eat. I don't care if it's Oreo cookies, chocolate chip cookies, ice cream, yogurt, any types of fruits, almond milk, regular milk, whatever you like, chocolate milk, preferably. Before you go to bed at night, we want to make a shake that has time relief protein, mass building protein. We want to put everything in that shake that tastes good to your son or daughter. And what our goal there is, is to get the body to be fed while it's recovering, replenishing, and, and really gaining strength with, with regard to muscle fibers. And so what we, our goal there is to try to get 1,000 to 1,500 calories before bed, if we can. We take half of that shake, we put it in the refrigerator, and in the morning, we drink the remaining portion of that shake with a breakfast. Now, a breakfast can be eggs, pancakes, waffles. We get Eggo waffles, can go in a microwave or a toaster oven, same thing with pancakes. Have an egg sandwich. Try to get something in a consistent game plan where you have the shake and a sandwich or two sandwiches, preferably. I also tell parents, whatever your son likes from mom, meatloaf, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, pasta and meatballs, whatever your son likes as far as what you cook, take that to school and kind of combine that with the school lunch. I always like to say, if you can get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in between math and you know phys ed at 9 a.m., that's gonna be beneficial because a lot of times kids are gonna get hungry after that second or third hour of being in school. The other thing I always tell parents is Metrex makes a, a colossal bar. And the reason why I like those is they're generally 750 to 1,000 calories. Now, there's a lot of various brands. I just use Metrex as an example. But that's another bar that can get those calories in during the course of school one or two times possibly. Lunch, again, you want to have what mom ever made, whatever mom makes. And then you want to kind of have that snack in between football practice, preferably a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or metrics bar that's your snack then you have your dinner and then we want to have a snack you know before we go to bed uh for the extreme cases i always tell kids chocolate milk and a couple of hard-boiled eggs before you go to bed you know that's going to help um but if you keep a journal and that's the other thing a daily journal is so simple for either a parent or a student athlete to keep and just say hey look i ate six times today uh, according to my phone, you know, the calorie tracker, it was 7,480. Great. I'm in, I'm in my window tomorrow. I have a game. I did, I only got 3000 calories in. Okay. You don't have to jump off the bridge. Just stay the course, you know, get back on the horse tomorrow and, and, uh, you know, try to be in that 5,000 to 10,000 calorie, because that's, if you're lifting weights, especially that's where you're going to see size occur. Uh, and, and to me, that's vital. It's absolutely critical uh, for development of a, of a student athlete that aspires to play at a higher level. How about the sports drinks, all these different colors, the red, the green, the purple? What do you think of sports drinks? Too much salt, too much fructose? 
you know, here's the thing. We've been so preconditioned to think that the this zero, that zero, you know, and, and what I try to explain to parents is when we're drinking water, if we can combine water with nutrients that the body, you know, for instance, there's greens now. I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, athletic greens or greens as a whole. If I look at greens in a glass of water, it doesn't look, you know, enticing in any capacity. But if I'm mixing it with uh, some fruit, uh, it's it's very it's very tasty. Uh, there are a lot of substitutes over and above the. I, I hate Red Bull. I, I, I you know all of these Energizer monsters and all kinds of things. Um, they're just not helping from a health perspective. Um, and so I always try to tell parents, do not go to Gatorade, do not do the quick bottle at the concession stand and, 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 and in its place, no, and pack in a, in a cooler, you know, diffused water that you can sit in the refrigerator for both my boys. I used to take a gallon jug of water. I'd pour probably a quarter of it out. Um, you know, we'd use that and whatever we were making for drinks at the time, but I would load it up with lemons, and oranges and grapefruits, cucumbers. They didn't even know cucumbers were in there. If they hear this, they'll figure it out for the first time. But, um, you know, and that they loved it, you know, and I would put strawberries and blueberries and they, they never, they just loved it. Uh, and they could chug it all down. Um, so if you can get creative with that, a lot more health benefit not just from an athletic standpoint, just from a quality of life perspective. Um, you know, and I don't want to make everybody think we're, we're health nuts, but it does play a role in your growth, um, you know, as a, as a human, not just as a young athlete. You know, with all the new training techniques, uh, why do you think, and the strength, why do you think there's so many more arm injuries in, in, in baseball, pitching inju- injuries, and the, and the pitchers don't go very long in the games anymore? I can tell you quite definitively, it has to do with lessons and competitive use at younger ages, overuse at younger ages. And I, a lot of parents, and we just had a new uh, Netflix documentary with Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan threw harder as he got older and arguably had his best years were when he was 33 to 44, 45. Nolan Ryan played catch every day, played catch with the football, played catch with the baseball, just played catch. He didn't pitch. He didn't compete every day. So let's take a look at today's world. We're game heavy and practice light. We're over-organized and less organic. We don't go out in the backyard and play catch with mom or dad or our best buddy up the street. We don't play catch. We compete, we take a lesson. And when we take a lesson, we're competing. And so the stress that is placed now 12 months a year, you know, major leaguers used to work during the off season decades ago. They didn't play all year round. And major leaguers today, they don't compete all year round, but yet our younger athletes compete all year round. And, And I get parents that'll tell me, even here in New England, last year, we had a group from New Hampshire, 13 years old, they played in a Martin Luther King tournament in January in Arizona. They played in a school vacation week in February. They competed. They went to Florida. And then they came home in March and they started to play games. And, oh, by the way, everybody was sore. Everybody was hurt. Well, no kidding. Your body is not meant to compete as a child 12 months a year. If we don't ask adults to compete 
12 months a year. Why are we asking children to compete 12 months a year? And I'll give you the answer, Carrie. It has to do with a green piece of paper and they add up because, hey, I'm bored. Let's, it's snow covered here in New Hampshire. Let's go to Florida in February. Sounds like a great idea. You know who loves that is parents because they get to hang out at the beach. They get to hang out at the pool. They get to go hang out and get a tan. Their kids are pitching against a team from Tampa. They're playing all year round. I don't, I don't agree with that concept either. But the problem is, is people make money. Tournaments. People make money with lessons. And the narrative is get better by playing more, by competing more, by taking more lessons. When in reality, if we go down to, if I go down to Venezuela or the Dominican Republic, they're playing like wiffle ball. They're playing catch. They're not playing on a, getting on a bus and driving to go play some team 14 innings on a Saturday in December. They're playing catch. So arms can't get stronger. It, I, here's my greatest example to every parent out there. Lifting weights. If I said to a parent, your son is capable of lifting one rep, 145 pounds off of a bench press one time, are you going to make him do that every single day? Is he going to try to lift 145 pounds 10 times when he can really only do it once before he fatigues? Because rep two, three, four, five, they're going to hurt. They're going to hurt. So we're, we're, we're doing more harm by competing. And if we got rid of the tournament-heavy, game-heavy practice light and we re reversed it, we'd have less arm injuries. We'd have stronger arms throwing for longer periods of time. It's as simple as that. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromicell, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and micromicell technology. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You.
And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe for You is because it's safe for me and you.